Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that is through the first Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the second Adam. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam sinned one time and plunged the whole human race into sin. The second Adam lived 33 years of obedience to his father, never sinning in thought, word, or deed, and then died as a bloody sacrifice upon the cross to bring his new creation eternal life. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's take our Bibles as we continue in worship and really come to the climax of our worship this morning, hear the preaching of God's Word Let's turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. For those of you who are visiting with us, we started a study in the Gospel of Mark several weeks ago, and we find ourselves uh, at the beginning of a study of the Twelve Apostles here in Mark chapter 3. This morning, I want to begin looking at this group of Twelve Apostles, and I uh, told my wife this week that I intended to study all Twelve of them this Lord's Day. And um, that was a ridiculous statement to make because uh, that proved impossible as I got to the study. So we're going to just kind of touch the surface looking at the lives of a few of the apostles here this morning. But I want to begin by reading in Mark chapter 3. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll begin reading in verse 13 and I'll read down through verse 19. Now hear the Word of God. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, 
James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Please be seated as we bow to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, once again we come before your holy throne asking for your grace and your help. Lord, to understand this passage of Scripture. Lord, in studying this text and studying the lives of these apostles, we do not seek to bring glory to these men. We seek to bring glory to Christ. Because as we study their lives, we find that they are ordinary men. Lord, we find they are sinful men. Men that you changed by your grace. And Lord, we see ourselves in these men. We recognize and acknowledge that you have changed our hearts if we are Christians this morning. We are not what we used to be, and we are so grateful for that. And so we pray that this might be an opportunity to worship you. Lord, even as we sit and study these men, that we would recall in our own hearts and our own lives the way that you have changed us and the way that you have made us new creatures through Christ, through the gospel even as you conform us to the image of your Son. So bless us, we pray, as we study this. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time as we looked here at Mark chapter 3 and verses 13 through 15, we very generally answered the question, why Jesus chose the twelve apostles to himself. And we saw that This really had to do with the character of God, didn't we? We saw this had to do with the sovereignty of God. We saw in verse 13 that Jesus went up on the mountain and called to those whom He desired to come to Him. So one of the reasons that God chose 12 apostles to follow Him was to reveal His sovereignty. That if God is going to have anyone follow Him, if Jesus is going to have anyone follow Him as His disciples, it must be rooted in the sovereignty of God. And we noted the fact that that is true not just about these apostles, but that is true about your salvation if you are a Christian this morning. Your salvation, your calling to Christ, your discipleship is rooted in God's sovereignty. Secondly, we saw that His calling of the twelve was not only rooted in sovereignty, but also in intimacy. We read here in verse 14, He appointed the twelve, those whom He named apostles, so that they might be with Him. One of the reasons God chooses to save sinners is so that they might be with Him, that they might be in union with Him. And we explored this doctrine of union with Christ, really just touching upon it, the reality that if you are a Christian, God has placed you in Christ. As Paul says in Colossians 3.3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are one with Christ. He is your elder brother. And He has brought you to your Creator, the Father of heaven and earth. You are part of a new family. You are part of a new creation. You are part of the family of God. So one of the reasons that God saves us is not merely to reveal His power or His sovereignty, to save us from sin and to save us from hell, but also to reveal His intimacy. God is a God of love. And God wants to save and bring near to Himself poor, needy, undeserving sinners. And as we study the twelve, we will see that these men were anything but compelling. These men were anything but lovable. They were filled with all sorts of flaws and failures and warts, everything. 
And as we look at their lives, it is a mirror into our own souls regarding our own sinfulness, causing us to bow down, prostrate before our God and worship Him for saving us, wanting to be with us, wanting us to be with Him is a cause for worship. Why did God choose these 12? He chose them because of His sovereignty and because of His intimacy. And then third, we saw because of His authority. We saw at the end of verse 14, He sent them out that they might preach and that they might have authority to cast out demons. We spent some time last week exploring the fact that when Christ walked this earth, He was establishing His kingdom, wasn't He? This was a new epic, a new era in redemptive history in which Through Christ, the Holy Spirit would be poured out and God would draw to Himself not just Jews that came from the twelve tribes of Israel, but He would draw from all corners of the world Gentiles who would be part of the kingdom of God that would come with authority. Demons would be cast out. Satan would be bound. Christ's kingdom would be established. And the true Israel would be reconstituted with the twelve apostles. This new nation of God, this new creation would reveal the authority of God, the authority of King Jesus who died upon the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, pouring forth the Holy Spirit, empowering the church to preach the gospel and to call sinners into his kingdom. So verses 13 through 15 dealt with why Jesus called the twelve apostles to himself. This morning we want to begin answering the question, who were these men? We understand why he called them, but who were these men? And also, a second question, how did God change these men into useful vessels for his kingdom? Now, I've never been to Hawaii. Some of you have been, and I envy you. But I have learned that one of the most famous places that tourists like to go is a place called Diamond Head. Diamond Head is an extinct volcano. And we read that early Western explorers gave it this nickname because of the shining rocks embedded in its slopes. So apparently from their distant ship, British sailors in the 19th century thought that they had discovered diamonds. To their disappointment, upon closer examination, it revealed that these supposed diamonds were actually just worthless calcite crystals. And in a similar way, the twelve apostles from a distance look like towering figures, bigger than life, almost angelic. In fact, historians have referred to the inner circle of apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as the stained glass Apostles, because their images appear in chapels and churches all over the world. But as we look at these apostles upon closer examination, we discover that they were very, very ordinary men. And we are much like these apostles. All of us are trophies of God's grace, washed, renewed, and cleansed by the gospel. God has made us who we are in Christ by His sovereignty and by His grace. And we can take no credit for who we are in Christ. All of the glory goes to God and to God alone. If we are vessels useful for the Master, it is because He made us and He formed us and He fashioned us as new creatures in Christ. 
And we learn from the lives of these 12 apostles that God, in spite of the fact that He is sovereign, in spite of the fact that He created us anew in Christ, He wants to use us to accomplish His purposes. And He does use these apostles in an amazing way. If you notice your Bibles there in verse 16, it begins with the words, He, that is Jesus, appointed the twelve. Now that word appointed, we looked at it back in verse 14. It was used there where it says he appointed the 12. It comes from the Greek word poieo. It's a very interesting word because it literally means in the Greek to create or to produce, to form or to fashion. And we noted the fact last time that in the Greek Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, God appointed the heavens and the earth. He formed or he fashioned the heavens and the earth. And this is a very critical notation of theology because I believe that Mark was very aware of the Greek Septuagint and Mark was making a theological statement by using the Greek word poieo to tell us that that something was happening upon this mountain in which Jesus Christ was forming and fashioning and creating a new creation, beginning with the apostles. You remember how the apostle John opened up his gospel. Much like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Well, here in Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus is the Creator of the New Testament church. In fact, if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we mentioned this verse last time, but I want you to turn there, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. You're familiar with it. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now notice carefully verse 17. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. So the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ has to do with the fact that you are a new creature, a new creation being formed by Christ and in Christ. This is why the Bible describes salvation as a sovereign work of God. It's like creation. When God created the world, He created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. Just as man had nothing to do with bringing the physical creation into existence, so too is man incapable of contributing anything to God's spiritual creation, to the church. Believers are part of a new creation, as verse 17 says, in Christ. Because of His work of redemption, the elect of God are sovereignly placed in union with Christ, the author of God's new creation. This is why the Bible uses rich metaphors to describe your salvation. It describes it as a new birth. Remember Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or Ephesians chapter 2, salvation is described as a resurrection. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God raised you up to new life. In Titus 3, in verse 5, it speaks about the washing of regeneration or the new birth, the renewal by the Holy Spirit. And Peter says to the elect believers that he writes to that they have been born again, listen to this, not of seed which is 
perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. So again, just as the physical creation was spoken into existence by the enduring Word of God, Peter says, so too have you been spoken into existence by the Word of God. The enduring Word of God. The preaching of the Gospel raised you from your deadness and sins. The preaching of the Gospel caused you to be birthed anew into the kingdom of God. You were born not according to the work of man, imperishable seed, but to the imperishable seed, the seed of the Word of the Gospel. The Apostle John uses similar language of seed and says that someone in Christ as a new creation does not continue in patterns of unrepentant sin. After being born again, he says this in 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God or born from above. And that's really what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are now a new creature in Christ. And then verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, all this is from God. All of this is from God. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It is our faith in God, specifically in Christ, that brings us into the kingdom of God. Mark would have been familiar with the Greek Septuagint. And so I believe very strongly that when he uses that word appointed in verse 16, he is saying that Christ on this mountain was making a new creation. A new creation that began with the apostles of the New Testament building upon the prophets of the Old Testament. I'll remind you of a passage. Paul wrote this. You can just listen to it. Paul said, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 of Ephesians 2, In Him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Everything returns to the doctrine of our union with Christ, the reality that we are new creations in Christ, in Him, a temple being built up by God on the foundation of the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets. And not only that, but there's more theology to this. Christ is not only truly God, bringing this new creation of the church into existence, He is also truly man, because He is the second Adam. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 5. This theology is critical in understanding why God chose 12 apostles and understanding that they were the foundation of the church. Christ was not only truly God, bringing the new creation of the church into existence, He's truly man. He's both. Romans 5, notice with me in verse 17, For if, 
Because of one man's trespass, that's the old Adam, death reigned through that one man. Paul says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's the second Adam. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that is through the first Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the second Adam. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam sinned one time and plunged the whole human race into sin. The second Adam lived 33 years of obedience to his father, never sinning in thought, word, or deed, and then died as a bloody sacrifice upon the cross to bring his new creation eternal life. And when you go back to Genesis, you read that Adam named the animal kingdom. And here we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, that Jesus appointed the twelve and he named the apostles. Jesus is creating the church. Just as the first Adam named God's new creation, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, is bringing into reality His new creation, the apostles, the reconstitution of the true Israel, these twelve apostles representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, the church began in the Old Testament with the prophets and the prediction of the coming of Christ. But now we see this new creation coming to fruition through the Word of Christ in appointing these twelve men. We say all of that to say that a study of these twelve men is not merely a study of twelve men. It is a study of the church. It is a study of your life. It is a study of the gifts and the calling of God upon your life and your place in this new creation, in this true Israel of God. You are part of something much larger than yourself, being united to Christ by His sovereign grace. Now as we look at these twelve apostles, we've read this passage and their names. Their names, by the way, are recorded in four other places in the New Testament, and their names are always organized into the same three groups of four. The first group was the closest to Christ. We know the most about them. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The second group, Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, we know less about. And the third group, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, we know even less. Interestingly, the order of the names changes slightly in the various lists found in Scripture, but the order of the three groups never changes. And in addition to that, Each one of these groups apparently has a designated leader. Peter is always listed as the first person in the first group. Philip heads the second group, and James, the son of Alphaeus, heads the third group. We've already introduced Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew, formerly known as Levi, because at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he records the calling of these men. But what I want to do is review the calling of these men, review who they were, and then introduce the others to you. Again, remembering, as I've said so many times before, that a study of the twelve apostles is really a study of a microcosm of the church. The church is full of different people with different personalities, different functions, different giftings, 
different opportunities. And a study of these 12 men teach us how God uses different people in the church to accomplish His sovereign purposes. Again, all of the glory goes to God, but God chooses to use human instruments to preach the gospel, to declare the gospel, and to accomplish His purposes in the world. So there are 12 total. We'll see how far we can get this morning. Let's begin where Mark begins, and all the other writers of the New Testament begin when they list the apostles with Peter. And we'll call Peter, Simon Peter, the apostle of second chances. The apostle of second chances. Verse 16 calls him Simon. (coughs) And then Mark is quick to point out to whom he, that is Jesus, (coughs) gave the name Peter. Now we know a lot about Simon Peter. While he possessed noble characteristics such as boldness, leadership, and drive, he was also marked by an impetuous and inconsistent emotionalism. In one breath, he would say in John 6, when the disciples were deserting Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Then we read later in Luke's Gospel that he denied the Lord three times. He was a man of emotion. He was a man of aggression. He is mentioned more than any of the other apostles in the Bible. He speaks more than any of the other apostles in the Bible. And he confesses Christ more openly than any of the other apostles in the Bible. And yet at the same time, he is rebuked by our Lord more than any other apostle. Jesus even referred to him one time as Satan telling him to get behind me, Satan. But God shaped Peter into a bold preacher and leader, and he became a dominant figure in the book of Acts. He heads the first of every list of the apostles. He's the first to fully identify and confess Jesus as the Christ. He is the first to enter the empty tomb. We read this in John chapter 20. John was a faster runner and got there first, but only looked in. Peter caught up and walked into the tomb. Peter was the first apostle to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. We learn that in Acts chapter 10. As you know, as we've looked at Peter before in Mark's gospel, he was a fisherman. He was the brother of Andrew. They were the sons of Barjona. They were originally from Bethsaida which was a little village located on the north side of Galilee, that lake. He lived just a stone's throw from the synagogue in Capernaum, and we've already established the fact that Jesus established Peter's house as his headquarters for his greater Galilean ministry. So Peter apparently was a hospitable man. He had a wife and at least one child, and Jesus lived at his house during his greater Galilean ministry. Church tradition tells us that there was a church that was built over the site of Peter's home, the ruins of which have been recovered. Both Peter and his brother Andrew were first disciples of John the Baptist. We learn that from John chapter 1. Peter was a conflicted man. That's probably the easiest way to summarize him. He was inconsistent. We noted, or we note from Matthew 14, that Peter was scared when he began to walk on the water to meet his Lord. And Jesus said to him, Oh, ye of little faith. And so it's easy to criticize Peter. And yet at the same time, we need to recognize the fact that Peter was the only one of the twelve who had enough faith to walk out on the water. 
He was inconsistent. One moment having faith, the next moment not. One moment saying, I'll be committed to you until you die, and I'll die for you, Jesus. The next moment denying that he even knew the Lord to a little servant child. But he showed faith and fearlessness. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 4, we see that after our Lord's resurrection and ascension, Peter became a great man of boldness. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and the apostles are warned not to speak anymore in the name of Christ. And the authorities called Peter and John, verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, you do whatever you want to us, but we know the truth and we will speak about Jesus Christ. Boldness. Verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And then we read in verse 23, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, whatever your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants... Notice this prayer request to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That was Peter. He may have denied our Lord three times, but he learned his lesson. And he said, Lord, my prayer is not going to be that you deliver me from the hands of my enemies, but that you give me the boldness to tell them the truth because I have seen Jesus and been with Jesus. As verse 16 says, His original name was Simon, to whom Jesus gave the name Peter. Of course, Peter meaning the rock. Jesus didn't give him that name because he was always a rock. We've learned that. But rather to identify him as a new creation that he would change. By the sovereign power of God, Peter did become a rock-like figure in the church. And eventually, Peter became a humble man. I think it's interesting that when you go to read the epistles of Peter, you come to places like 2 Peter 1.1, and Peter refers to himself not as Peter, but as Simon Peter. Perhaps as a reminder of what he was and what he became by God's grace, a useful servant to God. Peter was not one we would think was humble until we read later about him, his willingness to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. But he did write about humility. He learned what it meant to be humble. He wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think he learned that by experience, don't you? God will oppose 
even his own disciples, when they are full of pride. God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. So Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter wrote that from his heart, not an ivory tower, because tradition says he eventually was crucified upside down because he told his executioners that he wasn't worthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord. He learned humility. Peter, by God's grace, became a man of character and consistency, and humility was the key. One person has written this, and I quote, The only thing that walks back from the tomb when the mourners... And the only thing that walks back from the tomb is the character of a man. What a man is survives him. It can never be buried. Well, that was Peter. Peter and his character we remember for the way God had changed his heart. Church Father Eusebius cites Clement and says that not only was Peter later executed upside down, crucified, but that Peter also was forced to watch his wife be crucified. And he cried out to his wife, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Peter remembered the Lord until his death because his Lord remembered him even when he failed. And such is the essence of true salvation. It's not what man achieves for God. It's what God has achieved for sinners through Christ upon the cross. It is God's love for us that compels us to love Him God loved us first, and so we love Him in return. Peter understood and lived out that axiom that our Lord preached, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Peter started out wanting to be on top. God humbled him through his failures, put him on the bottom. And as he was on the bottom, he was taught by God's grace that if he was on the bottom and served, that God would exalt him in due time place him on the top, becoming the apostle of second chances. You know, I think we learn from Peter's life that we need to examine our own hearts. Consider how God has humbled you. Maybe He's humbled you through trials or tribulations. Maybe God has humbled you through sickness. Maybe God has humbled you through some moral public failure. Understand this. That is where you will learn the most. Humility is what will allow you to rise to the top. Humility is what God uses to make out of you something great that will be a life that honors the Lord and glorifies the Lord. Peter is exposed before the church in the Bible for all of his flaws and all of his failures, and yet he is considered to be Aside from the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest apostle. Don't try to cover up your sin. Don't try to be someone that you are not. Don't live as a hypocrite. Because if you do, God will expose you. And He will humble you. And depending upon how you respond to that humbling, will determine the level to which God uses you. Peter's last recorded words are recorded in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you turn over there with me. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. I love this. 
Peter's last recorded words. Peter says, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That was His parting words. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter had a lot of growing to do. If he was going to become the rock that Jesus said he would become, Peter learned through his failures, he became the apostle of second chances. And I just want to say to you today, that no matter where you come from, no matter how much you have failed the Lord, He is always standing there ready to pick you back up. There is no sin that is unforgivable except the rejection of His Son. There is no sin that will lead you to hell except refusing to believe in Christ. Refusing to believe that He can forgive you for even the worst of sins. Here's the Apostle Peter who denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. The Lord restored him. The Lord forgave him. And that's how powerful the Gospel is for you. If you will humble yourself like Peter, confess your sins, and crawl back to Christ, He will embrace you. And He will receive you. That's what we learn about Peter. Simon Peter the Apostle of Second Chances. But I want us to move on. I want you to note with me, not only Simon Peter, the Apostle of Second Chances, but let's look together at James and John together. We'll call them the Sons of Thunder. They're mentioned next in verse 17. Mark goes on to say, James, the son of Zebedee, and John... The brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. These men were also part of Christ's inner circle, along with Peter. And Mark points out their name, Boanerges, sons of thunder. This was due to their intense, fiery temperaments, their great passion for God. Apparently their persona reminded our Lord of an unpredictable thunderstorm. I saw earlier in Mark that they worked in a fishing business along with their father Zebedee. Apparently Peter and Andrew knew James and John because we read earlier in Mark that just a little bit further along the shore, Peter and Andrew were working, casting their nets into the lake. James was likely the older brother because he's mentioned first, but John was, as you well know, the more prominent figure in the Bible, not only in the Gospels. He wrote a Gospel, John did, but he also authored five epistles. On the one hand, James was the first apostle martyred. He was the first to go to heaven, but John was the first to see heaven. He writes the book of Revelation. He received a vision from the Lord from heaven on the island of Patmos, the first to see heaven, but the last to go to heaven, John being the last apostle to die. But what I want to focus on is their thunderous passion. Their thunderous passion, I think we could say, was commendable to a degree, but admittedly self-seeking. 
James and John were two out of the three men who saw our Lord transfigured in Luke chapter 9, but apparently this transfiguration of Christ went to their heads because we read later in Luke chapter 9 that they started an argument with the other apostles. For our analysis of these two men, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 9 because I think this incident in Luke chapter 9 reveals to us what gave birth to their nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Who were these guys? Luke chapter 9, we'll pick up in verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, that is, Jesus, to be taken up to Jerusalem and ultimately taken up upon the cross at Calvary to be crucified, Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him, but the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem because He was a Jew to celebrate the Passover. And when His disciples, James and John, here they are, saw it, they said, Lord, do You want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But He turned and rebuked them. Verse 56 says, they went on to another village. So what's happening here is that Jesus is leaving His greater Galilean ministry. The ministry that Mark has been describing to us, where Jesus is going through every village in Galilee, preaching the gospel, casting out demons. Here in John, or Luke chapter 9, Jesus is now leaving that ministry. He's heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And verse 52 says, He entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. So, They're looking for food. They're looking for lodging. Jesus sent His company of disciples. But they're in a village of the Samaritans. Samaritans did not want to provide lodging for them. Verse 53 says, The people did not receive Him, that is Jesus, because His face was set toward Jerusalem. These were Jewish men, Jesus and the company of the twelve, and Samaritans hated Jews, Jews hated Samaritans. This was rooted in a long history of hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Centuries before the days of Christ, when the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. When the northern kingdom, with the capital city of Samaria, was defeated by the Assyrians, Second Kings chapter 17 tells us that they took some of the prominent citizens that were in Assyria, they took them into exile and they replaced them with people from other regions of the world so that the Jews that remained in Samaria and are married with these other pagans resulted in not only foreigners intermarrying with Israelites who remained there, but also a new religion being formed, a pagan mixture of Judaism and other religions, so that the Jews viewed these Samaritans as half-breeds, not possessing pure Jewish blood. They were the originators of a hybrid religious system with a separate temple on Mount Gerizim, a separate priesthood, a separate sacrificial system. It was basically a cult. They only held to the first five books, the Pentateuch, They rejected the rest of the Old Testament, so Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Centuries of built-up animosity between Jews and Samaritans led to this intense hatred that now Jesus and the disciples are receiving here in Luke 9. In fact, 
Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would cross the Jordan River twice, going the longer route in order to avoid passing through Samaria. Jesus never did that. You remember the religious leaders revealed their hatred for our Lord in John 8.48 when they referred to Him as a Samaritan. That was equivalent to a racial slur. You wouldn't call anyone a Samaritan unless you absolutely hated him, especially another Jew. But the religious leaders called Jesus that. So you can understand here in our text, verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, notice they are highlighted. Out of all the twelve, they are the fiery ones. They are the thunderous ones. When they saw this rejection... They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus rebuked these sons of thunder. Why? Well, because what appeared to be righteous anger was really vengeful. This incident provides a glimpse into the character of these men. They had passion and boldness for Christ, but it needed redirected, didn't it? It needed redirected. There's another incident, we'll talk about it here in a moment, where their mother went to Jesus. We read about this in Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10. And probably wanting to leverage her wealth because she was a great supporter of Jesus' ministry was trying to bribe Jesus to allow her sons James and John to have prominent positions in His kingdom. When it says... James and John were the sons of thunder. Perhaps they got the thunder from their mother. Ran in the family. They were wanting to serve themselves, weren't they? I mean, that language is interesting, isn't it? Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? I imagine Jesus looking at them like, why do I need you to ask my father to do anything? But these men eventually made a thunderous noise for the kingdom of God. They became servants. First, I want to consider James. We'll call him James the Courageous. He's mentioned first, James the son of Zebedee, likely the oldest of the boys, but probably the most forgotten of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, those close three. This James, by the way, is not the same author of the New Testament book we know as James. It's not the half-brother of our Lord. It's a different James, the brother of John. His zeal was deep and great, but needed to be redirected. He was a man of courage. He was a man that was willing to die for the truth. Indeed, he did die for the truth. He was the first apostle martyred. In fact, you might not realize this, but he is the only one of the twelve apostles whose martyrdom is recorded in Scripture. We read about that. In Acts chapter 12, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 12, James was martyred about a decade after Christ's crucifixion, sometime between the years A.D. 42 and A.D. 44. But Acts chapter 12 gives us some insight into his courage. Acts 12 verse 1 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James the brother of John, with the sword. In verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who tried to slaughter all the baby males two years and younger. 
this Herod, due to poor leadership and unwise comments about the Roman Emperor Tiberius, was imprisoned. And upon his release, he was put in charge of the Jews. He became the king of the Jews. That, that was what he was called. And in an effort to placate the Jews, to head off a revolt so that he stayed in good graces with the Romans, he persecuted the church. As verse 3 says there, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, his killing of James, he went and arrested Peter too. So he wasn't a Jew, but he obeyed the Jewish law. He observed the Jewish law to stay in good graces with the Jews so that he would stay in good graces with the Romans so that the Jews would not revolt and he could keep his job. He killed James, as Acts says here, by the sword. That was... Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 13, anyone who was guilty of worshiping other gods was to die by the edge of the sword. And Herod's argument was, James and John and Peter and all the apostles are worshiping a false god because they're worshiping Jesus. And so, he was killed by the edge of the sword. Here was a man who had courage. How did he get his head lopped off? Well, he apparently either said something not politically correct? Or I don't know, maybe he preached the one true, precious, pure gospel and the politicians didn't like that? It cost him. It cost him. Here was a man who wanted to kill others, but eventually became a man who was willing to be killed for the sake of Christ. God's grace had changed him, hadn't it? He lived out John 15. In verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. James understood that. Apparently, he received our Lord's rebuke in Luke 9 for wanting to call fire down from heaven, understanding that serving Christ would come with a cost. Serving Christ would come with its list of inconveniences, its frustrations. And just as James, along with his brother John, had an idealistic spirit of thinking, well, the world owes us something, they owe us food and lodging, who are they to deny us food and lodging? They became men who realized the world does not always play fair. Did the world play fair with Jesus? They crucified the sinless, spotless, holy Son of God. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We are living in a period, beloved, in which Christians need to begin applying those principles. We need to be willing to be rejected, despised, hated. And we need to do that without demanding God retaliate. God is the one who is just. Putting our whole Bible together, the Psalms are filled with prayers to God. Why don't you punish your enemies sooner? See, we need to allow God to work in His timing according to His patience. We can't think that we have the right to call thunder down on our enemies. 
Because such may not be a sign of courage, but actually one of hatred. I think that was true of James and John. They wanted fire to come down because they hated the Samaritans. It wasn't so much courage, it was a fiery zeal that was misdirected. On the surface, such a demand may appear righteous and noble. Of course, we should want God's justice to rain down. But the way they said it, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven? Do you want us to do it? That revealed they didn't have faith that God would act justly in his own time, right? They didn't trust God. They wanted to retaliate against their enemies. It is interesting that in this same area that they wanted to call fire down, that was the same region in which Elijah the prophet called fire to come down to consume. The sacrifices offered up. Remember that contest on Mount Carmel. King Ahaziah sent a group of men to arrest Elijah. What did Elijah do? He called fire to come down from heaven and to consume them. It validated Elijah as God's man, as a true prophet. And perhaps James and John wanted to have that sort of validation. You understand they, they were making it about themselves. They were making... It about themselves, just as they requested of the Lord in Mark 10 to have prominent seats in the kingdom. They were making it about themselves. They had a zeal, but it was misdirected. They had a thunderous boldness, but it was misdirected. And it was only the gospel of God's grace that would change that. I think there's a whole slew of application for that for us. Instead of destroying our enemies, Christians need to have the attitude of Christ wanting to rescue our enemies. Son of Man came to give His life. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We often quote John 3.16, but John 3.17 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus said in John 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What is the lesson? The lesson is this. The way of Christ is love and grace and self-control toward our enemies. There is a difference between righteous anger and sinful anger, and the difference is not simply that when we want to be right, we call it righteous anger. James and John would have done that. Courage and zeal must be directed for the Lord's glory, not self-glory. We must learn to love our enemies, not hate them. In fact, James learned to love his enemies so much that when they told him not to speak the gospel, he said, I love you so much, I'm going to speak it anyway, even if you kill me. Because courage is not marked by pride or ambition or anger. True courage is holy boldness, as Matthew Henry calls it. And it is marked by patience, kindness, truthfulness, humbleness, and a sacrificial spirit. True courage. True courage is loving when you have every reason to hate. Forgiving when you have every reason to hold a grudge. And standing for truth when you have every reason to back down. James learned that. James, the older son of thunder. He really left a lightning jolt to shake the church, number one, out of its compromising ways, out of fear, and on the other hand, a zeal that's misdirected for selfish ambition. This man who wanted fire to come down from heaven on others to destroy others was a man who was willing to be destroyed for the sake of Christ. 
You know, church history is full of men like this. I think of men like William Tyndale, who translated from the Greek, the first English Bible published in 1526, risking everything for this illegal project. He once was confronted by a Roman Catholic bishop who told him, we're better off without God's Word than we are without the Pope's Word. You know what Tyndale said? He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if the Pope allow me to live long enough, I will make sure a boy on a plow knows more Scripture than you. That's holy boldness. Not selfishness, not selfish ambition. He was in prison in 1535, eventually strangled to death and burnt at the stake. His last words were not, God damn the king, but God opened the eyes of the king of England. He loved his enemies. All his property was confiscated, but there was a friend by the name of John Rogers who found his unfinished manuscripts. He was working on another Bible. Two years later, it was published, known as the Matthews Bible, published in 1537. And Rogers would pay for his translation of the Bible as well. He had 11 children, the youngest of which he didn't see until he was being marched to the stake to be burnt. Again, he was provided an opportunity to recant. And he said, that which I have preached, I will now seal with my own blood. This is the heritage of Christianity. Being willing to suffer and be rejected for Christ. James started off bad. He ended well. The first martyr of the church. The older son of thunder. But now let's consider his younger brother John. Back in Mark 3, John is mentioned next. The younger brother of James, the more well-known. Also a son of thunder. He was present on that day with his brother wanting to call fire down from heaven. He was a very influential figure in the church. In fact, during our Lord's life, I believe there was not a man closer to Jesus than John. And the reason I say this is because John was the one reclining at Jesus' bosom during the Last Supper. He wanted to call thunder down from heaven. He was also the last one to go to heaven. He died as an old man, the last living apostle. Somewhere along the line, though, this thunderous, misdirected zeal was changed by God's grace and he acquired a tenderness of heart. Here he's called a son of thunder, but you know what his other nickname was? The apostle whom Jesus loved. John 13, verse 23, John 20, verses 2 and 9, other places. The apostle whom Jesus loved. In that scene in the upper room, you remember it. Judas is there with the twelve. He would later betray Jesus with a kiss. John is there reclining at the bosom of Jesus, even as Judas is plotting to betray Jesus before Satan enters him. Judas's kiss was hypocritical. John's affection lying on Jesus was genuine. Jesus loved John. So while on the one hand, Peter may have been the most influential apostle, Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. To John, Jesus gave the responsibility to take care of his mother. 
Turn with me to John chapter 19. This is such a precious portion of Scripture. This shows Jesus' love for John, that John's love was real. John chapter 19. Verse 25, it says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved, that's John, that's how He refers to Himself in this Gospel, standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then He said to the disciple, that is John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, that is John, took her to His own home. Jesus trusted John to care for his mother in his absence. This John, other than the Apostle Paul, would write more than any other apostle, more of the New Testament. The only other writer of the New Testament that wrote more in volume was Luke. But John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. In Galatians 2.9, Peter calls John, along with uh, Peter, the pillar of the church. Pillar of the church. But he is the apostle of love. He was a son of thunder that became an apostle of love. And I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about Christian love. He uses the word love more than 80 times in his writings. Most famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world... He loved our Lord. Our Lord loved him. He was convinced of the Lord's love for him, which caused him to love the Lord deeply. But he also spoke about the importance of loving one another. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I'll show you one place where he speaks about this. Maybe his most famous passage about loving others. Verse 7. 1 John 2 verse 7. Beloved, I am writing... You know new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I love this because John was a man of truth. He was a son of thunder. But John was also a man of love. And here he says, let me just make this crystal clear. A true Christian knows how to love others. A false Christian doesn't. Like Peter and James, John didn't just talk the Christian life, he walked it. We know that John isn't just recording these words, saying something he himself was unwilling to do, because as we just saw, Jesus chose him out of everyone left on the earth to care for his mother. He knew deeply the love of John, that it was real, that it was deep. In fact, Jesus' own brothers were not believing in Jesus. John was like a brother to Jesus. By the way, John is a brother to all Christians. Jesus is a brother to all Christians, part of the family of God, joined together by the blood of Christ. John not only loved the truth, John loved others. 
At the end of John's life, we read the early church father Jerome telling us that John pastored in Ephesus. He was so old and so feeble that he had to be carried into the church. And he just kept saying over and over and over again, my little children love one another. My little children love one another. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because when you read 1 John, you see that refrain over and over and over again, my little children. When he was asked why he kept saying the same thing, why do you keep preaching the same message? John said, because it is the Lord's command and if this alone be done, it is enough. It is enough. Do your actions speak louder than your words? Do you love in a sacrificial way? Or are you only good at talking the game of Christianity? John lived it. John was not narcissistic. He was not opportunistic. He was not a self-seeker. Oh, he was as a son of thunder wanting fire to come down on the Samaritans, but that's not what he became because the Gospel changed him. And such is precisely true about every Christian who is truly born again. His love was not sappy and sentimental. He referred and used the word love more than 80 times, but he also used the word truth more than 45 times. His love did not cause his courage to morph into compromise. His love was real because he had the courage to tell others the truth. The church truly loves the world when the church preaches the gospel, not when the church capitulates to the world to try to appear as if they love the world. Many, many, many years ago, I was given a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And I was told to to read it It would change my life. It did change my life because it told me everything that the Bible speaks against in terms of what it means to live with purpose. The author of that book, Rick Warren, has been lauded over the last couple of decades of being an evangelical, being a conservative, being someone who's so much impact. What a great evangelical leader. And even people that you and I respect have become friends with this man. And uh, what did he do just in the past week? Well, he ordained three women to be pastors in his church. Oh, the lovable Rick Warren. No, true love is telling women, regardless of whether it's Mother's Day or not, you have no right to be a pastor. No right. You say that's unloving. Oh, it's actually loving because it's the truth. It's the truth. I love John for this reason. Because in 1 John, he says, look, the Christian life is like a newspaper. It's black and white. Either you're walking in the light or you're walking in darkness. Either you have life or you don't have life. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And the litmus test of that is what kind of love marks your life? The kind that's willing to tell the truth or the kind that fibs and fudges the truth in order to win over people. That's not true love. That's not true love. And yet, he was still tender because he says this. Third John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. He loved those he pastored so much But his love was rooted in a desire for them to walk in the truth. Oh, by the way, 
John ended up loving those same Samaritans that he called fire to come down from heaven upon. We read in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, that's interesting. You will be my witnesses in Samaria? Who do you think would lead the way to Samaria? Well, we read this in Acts chapter 8. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. John said, I'll go. I'll go. They came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. They wanted that power. Peter said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter, I think he was frustrated. He's ready to go back to Jerusalem. Verse 24, Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And verse 25 says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. Do you know what? I think John diverted the path because the end of verse 25 says, But not before preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. John said, I have some business to do with those Samaritans that I called fire to come down from heaven upon He went and preached the gospel to them. Probably to that exact village. This time, not bringing the heat of vengeance, but bringing the heat of truth and the light of the gospel for souls to be saved. In Luke 9, fire He wanted to come down from heaven. In Acts 8, He loved the truth. And He loved the people. He had been changed by the gospel. In Luke 9, he loved the truth. Fire come down from heaven on these hateful Samaritans. In Acts 8, he loved the truth and loved the people. This fiery, misguided temperament of John was changed by God's grace and he became a fireball not of judgment and harshness toward others, but of grace and mercy, a flaming, burning sacrifice on the altar of God, known for his love. How much did he love the church? Well, church father Tertullian tells us that he was plunged into boiling oil in the Roman Colosseum only to survive. Those who saw this were so amazed they converted on the spot to Christ. Afterwards, he was banished to the island of Patmos. It was an island off the Aegean Sea. And he wrote to Christians that he would never see again because he loved them. He loved them. James and John, the sons of thunder, changed by God's grace. I I want to return just to say a word about their mother. Their mother was a woman by the name of Salome. I think that these men were influenced by their mother. I don't usually preach Mother's Day sermons, but I don't mind mentioning mothers on Mother's Day. Salome was one of the women who traveled with Jesus in his company of disciples. She was... Friends with Mary Magdalene and Mary and the others. These women didn't preach. They were not ordained. But they helped prepare meals. I I think that Salome gave of her great wealth 
probably accrued by her husband Zebedee in the fishing business to Jesus in his ministry. She had the qualities of a godly woman and a wife and a mother. She anointed Jesus' body, or went to the tomb to anoint his body for burial. Such is undervalued in our culture. That idea of motherhood, that idea of a faithful wife, feminism has ruined our culture. Feminism is not a friend of women. It's an enemy to women and to men. But this woman wasn't perfect. Turn with me to Matthew 20, just for a moment. Matthew chapter 20. We're almost done. But I want to show this to you. Matthew 20, in verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. She said, or he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Wow. Talk about an embarrassing moment for James and John. Their mommy having to go to bat for them before the other apostles. But they were willing to do that because they were self-seeking sons of thunder at this point. Verse 22, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. You will receive hatred, wrath, persecution. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those to whom has been prepared by my Father. In other words... You don't choose your place in the kingdom. I choose that. I choose that. What would have happened that day if Jesus would have granted that request of their mother? These men would have never become what they were. Such a thunderously bold request by the mother of the sons of thunder. Listen, the greatest thing mothers can do for their children is to refuse to give them everything they want. It's the greatest thing. Parents don't have to be perfect because the gospel is perfect. Parents are called to be faithful, but it's the gospel that changes hearts. The greatest thing a mother can do is to love the Lord, her God, with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not love her children more. Because if you love your children the right way, you're loving them the best way which means loving Christ the most. You love your children best when you love God the most. All of these character studies of the apostles reveals to us that we're all trophies of grace. God makes us into vessels that are useful apart from His grace. In making us new creations, we will act like the old men and women that we are. But by His grace... He can change us and use us. And that's what we learn from the lives of these men. Next week, we'll begin looking at Andrew, who is really on the outside looking in. He's part of that first group, but not part of the first three. I can relate to being left out. I understand that. I read this week of a famous artist that finished a painting of The Last Supper. Those of us who are very conservative and reformed in our understanding of images would not agree with the painting of Jesus, but for sake of illustration, just hang with me. He finished painting the portrait of the Last Supper and he called a friend over to 
give an opinion on this portrait. And the friend just made over how magnificent the cups on the table were. How beautiful the cups were in the portrait. His friend was so angered, the the painter was so angered, that he picked up his brush and he painted over every cup. His friend said, what are you doing? He said, well, I have failed. I wanted you to see Christ, and all you saw were the cups. To be seen by God as a vessel fit for His use is wonderful, but as His vessels, we should not be the focus. Christ and His glory should be the focus. Christ and His honor should be the focus. We don't study the lives of the twelve because we want to be like them. We study them because we want to be like Christ. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We want to be like Christ. And we know it's the Holy Spirit that makes us like Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that saves us, washes us, renews us, molds us to the image of Christ so that we can give glory to Christ. Not to ourselves. Not to ourselves. God uses imperfect people, not so we receive the glory, but so that He receives the glory. So may our lives be consecrated and useful for our Master. And as we study and continue to study these apostles, may the Holy Spirit change our hearts for His glory. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we thank You for the lives of these men that we have the privilege of studying Their lives serve as a window into our own hearts. Lord, to see our own faults and failures and sins. Lord, to be reminded of how You have changed us. Lord, by Your grace and for Your glory. We thank You for Christ. We thank You that His grace changes sons of thunder into tender, courageous men of God. That even like Peter, who failed multiple times, you give a second and a third and a fourth chance to. Lord, we ask that we might be overcome by your grace. We might look to Christ as our Savior. Lord, we pray that if there are any here today who don't know Christ, maybe they feel like they're a failure. Maybe they are overwhelmed with their sense of sin and unworthiness. That is a wonderful place to be because it's as they go low and are humbled in their sin, that they will be exalted with Christ. They confess their sin and look to Him as their Savior. Lord, thank You for our time of worship. Bless us now as we close with this hymn of response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.